0: Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation about a healthcare company that is innovating palliative care. We're going to get right to it today. Today, we're joined by Dr. Michael Fratkin, founder and director of Resolution Care. Dr. Fratkin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Joe.
0: Oh, it's truly our pleasure to talk to you today. Before we begin our discussion, could you take a few seconds and inform the audience? about you and your background
1: you bet yeah joe um i am well i'm i'm a father and a husband and a brother and a son and a whole bunch of other stuff but i'm also what's called a palliative care doctor and what i'm doing it what palliative care is is essentially a focus on two things One, uh, I am an expert in the treatment of symptoms. Symptoms like pain, nausea, and all the rest. I've got a pretty good bag of tricks and I know how to use them. Uh, The second thing that I focus on is helping people and their families to navigate, to make their way through What are often very complicated situations medically, um, but are always really hard situations. And while palliative care is focused on adding an extra layer of support to people with serious illness at any point along the trajectory of their illness to help them improve their quality of care, when I show up, whether it's... Now, or a month from now, or a year from now, or ten years from now, it's usually because serious illness has brought the question of mortality into the space. So, symptom control, navigational assistance, support for improved quality of life that's what palliative care is. Now, there are some problems in the world of healthcare, you may have noticed. (laughs) uh, The amount Of stuff that we do to people, the amount of procedural, high dollar, low value interventions that we do in the approach to the end of life uh, have extraordinary impact on the quality of living for people and on the cost of health care and displaces our use of resources from where it can make a big difference and deliver big value to places where it can make big profits for siloed elements of the healthcare system and serve stakeholders other than you and me and our brothers and sisters and cousins and fathers and all the rest of it. And so with our current healthcare system driven hard by a volume-based fee-for-service uh, incentive structure, we end up with uh, uh, exactly what is hurting us. Um, And so resolution care is a response to the broken healthcare system that I think is really hopeful um, because we are invested in the future of healthcare financing. We're invested in not volume-based payment models that have gotten us into this mess, but we are invested in value-based models that center the definition of value on the experience of a person with illness and then reverse engineer systems that deliver on those patient centered value measures so that got that got a little bit wonkish there uh, <laughs> in the economics. so let me tell you a little bit about what we actually are up to perfect uh, the reason that we uh, Uh, Are doing what we do is that people at the end of their life, or as they approach the end of their life, or as they deal with serious illness deserve to be held and cared for with their interests centrally. Resolution Care is simply an interdisciplinary palliative care team made up of a physician, a nurse, a social worker, a couple of community health workers, and spiritual counseling that takes more and better care of people with serious illness as an extra layer of support to what uh, they're receiving in the conventional healthcare system. Um, So what we're doing that's unique is that we don't have a clinic. We don't have a place where people come and by the time they arrive they become patients. We go see people where they live in their homes and we do it one of two ways. One is we drive up to their house and sit on their couch and eat their tea and look at their pictures on the wall and do house calls. Um, or we use uh, Zoom video conferencing technology uh, to provide virtual house calls. And that simple intervention adds a layer of efficiency uh, to, uh, to the care of these folks uh, that has been quite dramatic uh, to play out in the, in the short run. Um, And so, in addition to that, our clinical practice, Resolution Care PC, does this community-based palliative care uh, in a home-based way using video conferencing technology. We also are exploring the use of the video conferencing technology for our team to provide specialty palliative care consultation to the very rural frontiers of Northern California where people would otherwise have absolutely no access to the kind of symptom control and specialized uh, guidance that they require when they're very ill. So those are the two things that we're doing in the professional corporation or the clinical part of our organization. In the educational part, or the non-profit center called Revolution Care Fund, which is a fiscally sponsored project of community initiatives, our 501 C3, excuse me, Um, Resolution Care Fund is using a powerful learning model called Project ECHO from the University of New Mexico, not to address individual patients, but to extend or share our expertise with care providers in multiple different practice settings. And so what that looks like is our interdisciplinary team is engaging through the same Zoom video conferencing technology with learning units or learning teams in a hub and spoke model. Um, And those teams could be made up of nurses or nurse practitioners or physicians or uh, mental health workers in primary care clinic sites, in cancer centers, nephrology centers. We can engage with uh, physician groups like a hospitalist group or emergency department staff. Uh, Regardless, our team, the nurse, the doctor, the social worker, the chaplain will engage with those learning teams over time, running case after case after case. Uh, and with the idea that what we know and what we do, and most of the cases that deliver value, can be transmitted through this uh, sort of telementoring educational structure. So, resolution care is a clinical practice, resolution care fund is an educational initiative, um, and both of them use a team-based approach to deliver patient-centered value, uh, and we use video conferencing technology that works
0: beautifully. Dr. and you use social media and other sources to get the word out very well, and I've been able to See a lot of things that you guys have put out there, or that Resolution Care has. And one of the things is the importance of compassion and end-of-life care. Could you reinforce that? Why it's important, and how you build it into what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, my my sense of things is uh, it's a little troubling. Um, As I look at the history of human beings on the planet. um, kind of did this calculation it's about 90 billion of us have uh, walked across the surface of the planet earth yeah. and humans popped out um, of which a pretty good chunk of us are alive right now but all through human history I will assert that never before have people suffered the way they do at the end of their life I think that it's a paradox to imagine that as a result of all of our technology, and the medicalization of a natural human experience, I think that we suffer more now in the absence of coherent family, community, and social context uh, for the care of uh, people as they complete their lives. I think we suffer more now at the hands of our healthcare system than ever before in history. A lot of what we do is provide people the power to see the impact of the choices that they make. The biggest intervention that palliative care doctors and palliative care teams do is remind people that they're in control and show them or explain to them the implications of the choices that they're made. uh, high-intensity, high-technology specialties, and provider systems uh, use gizmos and procedures and high-tech to deliver their version of uh, value, what we do is we pull up a chair and we sit down and we really explore who these folks are and how they see what's happening to them. When we do that, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, The way forward reveals itself to them, and they tend to put one foot in front of the other. And at the end of the day, they reliably experience better outcomes, better sense of well-being. And lo and behold, they also tend not to choose a lot more medical stuff to be done to them in the last weeks and months of life, when they don't feel desperate and unempowered. And their families tend to respond pretty naturally to the idea that it's their job.
0: This sounds like a whole new approach to treating a patient that you've come up with. Sounds like I don't want to wait until I'm in my final days either to experience it.
1: Well, if we do our job well at the end of life, Joe, I reckon that we can learn a few things about how to re-engineer or reverse-engineer the rest of our so-called healthcare system. I mean, I I should say this, too, is that one of the things that inspired this project is that I got sick and tired of taking care of patients. Um, Now, I don't take care of patients. Patients are those people that magically pop up in your exam room uh, wearing paper gowns, looking uncomfortable, um, and threatening you (laughs) with all of the risk of liability and malpractice and uh, documentation requirements and uh, an unbelievable amount of volume that you have to create to manage your infrastructure uh, expenses. I don't take care of patients anymore. I take care of people, because people live at home. I mean, what it takes for a very sick person to magically pop up on your exam room is an often Herculean effort for a little old lady with heart failure and lung disease, excuse me, who can't uh, walk anymore. It's a three hour affair just to get themselves into the wheelchair that takes them to their car. Then they have to drive across town, find parking, get back in their wheelchair, come into the front desk, deal with your snotty front desk desk, (laughs) stuff, wait for the late doctor who's stressed out and his phone's ringing. And then the doctor is sitting there in the office looking over their right shoulder while they're documenting an appointment and looking almost 180 degrees away from the patient. That's how patients get cared for. For me, what happens... Either I'm sitting there on their couch um, eating homemade cookies, which is really wonderful, uh, <laughs> or if I'm looking at my computer, they're actually in it. So it, it. I take care of people who are in their homes, not patients, in clinical,
0: medicalized, industrial settings. So is this. Is palliative care as broken as um, what I'll say is typical health care, normal health care in the United States today?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we're kind of a beacon of what's possible um, by restoring the tradition of uh, uh, person-centered care and engagement. I mean, our biggest intervention is super low-tech, super high-value, which is to sit down and care about what's going on over there. Um, and the problem with palliative care is demographic um, and uh, supply-side. Um, the estimates are variable, but there's probably already a shortage of ten to 20,000 palliative care doctors in the U.S., and it's a new specialty, uh, so the number of available training programs are uh, fairly small. Um, in other words, the trickle of new specialty-trained type of care fellows is slow. Uh, at the same time, the silver tsunami, or the demographic impact of the huge wave of baby boomers and the aging of the population. Tells us that many, many more people um, are going to be old and have many medical problems that require excellent care uh, from a person centered view. And so there just isn't going to be enough of us, not for a very long time. And so the Institute of Medicine uh, published a report in late 2014 called Dying in America. Um, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology has published more than once this call, not just for more palliative care and more palliative care upstream in parallel to the traditional disease-directed care, but better primary palliative care or the kind of basic palliative care services that one might wish to receive wherever they get care for serious illness, So at their primary care clinics or at their cancer centers
0: the calls out to raise the bar. With that, Intrepid Healthcare will return with our guest, Dr. Michael Fratkin, after this quick break. We'll be right back. CTG Health Solutions is proud to have been your trusted advisor for healthcare IT consulting services for over 25 years. In that time, CTG Health Solutions has provided healthcare strategic, technical, and operational consulting support to more than 600 healthcare provider and payer organizations. CTG Health Solutions satisfied clients are supported by some of the most talented healthcare consultants who have chosen CTG Health Solutions as their work home in large part due to the company's outstanding culture. As they say, the proof is in the pudding. CTG Health Solutions was named a Modern Healthcare Best Places to Work company again last year. Find out more about CTG Health Solutions and their world-class culture by liking them on Facebook or stopping by their website at www.ctghs.com. And we're back with Dr. Michael Fracken, founder and director of Resolution Care. Dr. Fracken, you mentioned a shift to value-based care. I saw a statistic from Health Catalyst recently where 85% of Medicare payments will be tied to quality by 2016. Will the same dynamic happen in palliative care, and do we need that dynamic to happen faster?
1: Yeah, well, I'm hoping that palliative care represents an opportunity to align the forces of uh, those that provide healthcare with those that are responsible for, uh, paying for it. Um, and of care represents, I think, a kind of perfect opportunity to really pioneer. So by, uh, there, there are many programs that relate to super utilizers or people who, uh, are the small percentage of people using a large percentage of the resources. And, what we're learning from programs like that, and palliative care is one of them, um, is by investing a little, uh, you can reach that triple aim. Better health, better experience for people, um, and less cost. Um, and so palliative care represents actually a very well-established um, perfect storm, so to speak. Uh, for achieving the triple aim. So, yeah, we're we're right in the sweet spot for those changes. And the, the biggest, it's interesting, one of the biggest criticisms I've had of what we're doing, both in the application of telemedicine or the application of telementoring to the educational programs uh, and this home-based uh, approach to care, is that uh, since we're so invested in value-based payments, Um, and we're only in sort of early pilot phases, that people have uh, criticized resolution care on the basis of being, quote, too innovative or (laughs) too too ahead of the curve. And for a guy like me, that's uh, a pretty easy pill to swallow. Um, But that's, that's sort of the situation, is that we're invested in the future of healthcare financing, not the status quo or the past.
0: That's outstanding, and congratulations for that. I'll tell you a story I learned at Hims last month from a CIO in Birmingham who invested in a project for the population you're talking about in their ED, their frequent flyers, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but in essence they were working to decrease the revenues of their ED and the efficiency of their ED because these frequent flyers there was some number of them, whether it was 100 or a 1,000, represented way too big a percentage of their business and basically clogged the ED for other patients. And so they came up with a program to address the top, however many people it was, one at a time individually, kind of like we're talking now. And the person that it visited most was over 20 times in a year, visited zero times the second year.
1: It's it's amazing. And I'll tell you, my story that resonates with that is my son Max, just like maybe your son or daughter, put a stone up his nose. Yes. And I I, I hate to say it, I was sitting at the table watching him kind of play with this stone when he did it. (laughs) (laughs) But I ended up having to take him to the emergency room. We spent uh, four and a half hours in the waiting room Um, We got him back into the back room, and the doctor literally spent about 25 seconds using this uh, super cool little device made of plastic looking like a syringe. Zoop, zoop, out comes the stone, and at the end of the day, the bill was about $2,000. And I'd initially claimed it on my insurance, but it actually cost me more to have my insurance pay for it and suck it up on a deductible than to pay it out of pocket with a cash discount to the hospital. More right. half hours, about 30 seconds of health care, um, and uh, more than $2,000 in cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because there are people that are using the emergency department in a way that doesn't serve them, doesn't serve those that pay for health care, And doesn't serve my son Max with a stone in his
0: nose. I think that, and I'm interested in your perspective since you're pioneering here, telemedicine could help that. I have another story where I blew out my knee last fall. And I live in a kind of small town outside of Mobile, Alabama. So I went to the local hospital where there was not a physician in the ED. And I waited four or five hours. And basically, nothing happened during my ED visit that cost me $2,500. And they said, you need to go to a specialist, and the the soonest we can get you to a specialist is three weeks from now. Well, if I could have interacted with some type of telemedicine before I even went to the hospital, I would have saved myself $2,500. I would have gotten the right answer way quicker um, because they didn't do an MRI that night at the hospital. They did do an x ray and make sure nothing was broken, but simple experience and having been an athlete, I knew nothing was broken. So I think that telemedicine needs to f- start to fulfill its promise. So, one of the reasons I was very excited about talking with you is you are pioneering in a place where telemedicine is really working. Mm-hmm. So tell us about maybe your perspective on that, not on my story about, but how your patients are really benefiting and how you're able to expand your reach to places where you can't visit those patients.
1: I'll tell a couple of stories. A few months ago, I received a call from the cancer clinic about a guy who came to his appointment and was in distress. Um, One of the members of our team was able to zip over there, shake his hand, and engage him in um, accepting our assistance. Now, this guy lives about two and a half hours outside of town, Uh, widespread, uh, I think it was bladder cancer, in the bone, in the belly, uh, poorly controlled symptoms for months, losing weight, poorly tolerating cancer treatment. Um... And the only thing that he really wanted is he just wanted to go home. He understood that this was the last phase of his life. Um, But he wanted to go home and where he lived was out of the service area of our local hospice organization. There was no home health agency available to him. Uh, He was followed by our VA clinic um, and they have uh, fairly rigid structures that um, uh, are required to be followed in order to get medications provided. Um, but all he wanted to do was go out to the 27 acres uh, out on the Mad River uh, where he spent most of his adult life. Um, and we said we'd follow him. And so we did. We hooked him up via... Uh, uh, he already had a high-speed internet connection out there through a satellite, and he used an, an iPad that he already had. Uh, we uh, got him uh, up and running with the Zoom video conferencing platform. And uh, the following day, I met with him uh, and his sister, who was going to care for him, um, and started to make adjustments and changes in his medicines that delivered. Now, this guy is a music- musician his whole life, a guitar player, and for the last four or five months, he hadn't played his guitar. And I set the goal with him. I said, listen, I want to help you to feel better enough to play a guitar.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow.
1: And so over the course of the next six weeks, uh, we rocked and rolled. He had trouble with symptoms, and uh, we were calling pharmacies and getting medicines delivered out there and got some volunteer help from some of his neighbors who uh, do that sort of thing. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, a couple weeks before his death, he picked up the guitar that he hadn't picked up, and he played me a song, and he cried. Wow he got to stay right where he wanted to be um, and uh, we had trouble the last few days of his life it wasn't uh, all rainbows and unicorns um, but he completed his life on his own terms and, um, and that worked um, now since January I've just started to do this work um, the uh, competition for it is Uh, ambiguous at best. Right. Uh, But I've got now about 75 people that I'm seeing, and I'm seeing about two-thirds of my encounters with people are happening uh, via video conferencing. There's a few people who just can't wrap their head around it, don't want to do it, and if they live close enough to uh, where I hang out and zip over and see them at home. Um, But most people, even the ones that were resistant to getting started, um, are blown away by how seamless the experience is. After, oh, and the first, the first encounter, maybe a minute or two goes by before the technology disappears. But it does disappear. And then in follow ups, it's click. There we are. I send them an email uh, with a link. They click on that link. I show up on time. And they have my undivided attention. It turns out the encounters are more efficient, more soulful, and more uh, contextually based in a person in their home. They're a house call, um, and people are uh, blown away and very satisfied. And worst case scenario, if I'm late for a home visit, they're sitting around their living room waiting for me. They're not sitting in a crappy little
0: room. <laughs> That's I'm, right. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That makes us really, one, get emotional, and two, understand that telemedicine can and is working. You mentioned the reimbursement is, at best, shaky. What do we have to do to get reimbursement to come along? And, I mean, is that the last barrier to make telemedicine really well-adopted?
1: Yeah, I think the barriers are falling. I mean, the 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 weight of uh, technological uh, ability, you know, the, the technological tricks, is such that uh, we really do need to just utilize the tools that we've got. And our slow pace of adapting to changes in healthcare is one of the biggest changes that we will see in this generation. Is that our regulatory and compliance infrastructure? Uh, needs to come into the 21st century, and it will. And it is. And there's plenty of muscle uh, lobbying in that direction, um, most of it in self-interest, like uh, most business um, structures. But um, the soul of this technology is reflected in the kind of work that we're doing and we're part of the uh, raising of public awareness that will drive more uh, nimble uh, policy making. It's happening, the uh, American Association of Telemedicine is making progress, state legislatures around the country are ruminating and thinking about uh, uh, the archaic idea of the state border as it relates to our technological abilities. Um, one of the things that's pretty amazing I mean, there's, there's nothing that I'm doing that's proprietary um, everything that I'm using is uh, off the shelf technology that other whiz engineers have sorted out um, we're just taking tools that are part of the modern world and putting them to work for people um, so we use like, like I said Zoom video conferencing it's the first incredibly intuitive seamless uh, and reliable uh, video conferencing technology um, based in the cloud. Athena Health is a cloud based uh, electronic medical record, and we're happy to be using that one. Um, and so we're just using tools that are available in our environment to do the work that I would have been doing 400 years ago, I suspect, um, participating in the care and healing of the people in my community.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit more about Project ECHO. You gave kind of an overview of it, but I'd like to learn more how widespread, I mean, what are your ambitions for Project ECHO? Are you trying to teach a certain geography? Are you trying to teach nationally? How do people engage with you and how far do you intend for your reach to be?
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. to, just to, to review what Project Echo is, is this simple and beautiful creative uh, organization built um, on the inspiration of a guy by the name of Sanji Aurora. And so in the early 2000s, Sanji Aurora, the super specialist in the treatment of hepatitis C, realized he was barely touching the tip of the iceberg in caring for people with hepatitis C in the state of New Mexico. Um, changes in Therapeutics that both improved cure rates uh, but also complicated the monitoring of people um, inspired him to uh, go around the state of New Mexico and develop relationships with community clinics distributed in the very rural uh, big square state of New Mexico. And then he came back to Albuquerque and put a psychiatrist on one side and a, pharma, a pharmacologist on the other side and then engaged with each of these clinics using video conferencing technology. And then over time, a couple of times a month, for an hour and a half, they would run case after case, and he would share his expertise with them. They would share their expertise with each other, all these 15 clinics. And at the end of the day, um, a year or a few years later, they run the numbers and they look at the outcomes for the people that were cared for by the super expert in advocacy versus the uh community clinic, primary care providers, mid level practitioners, etc. And the results were that out in the hinterlands, people were getting outcomes that were as good or better than he was. In addition, what was a waiting period of about nine months to get into this clinic shrunk to about two weeks. And the number of people in the state of New Mexico that were treated uh, with state-of-the-art therapy um, skyrocketed by an order of magnitude. And so since that time, Project ECHO has added to its mission um, a commitment to replicate. And you have to check in with the folks down in New Mexico to find out what their numbers are because they change so rapidly. Um, But it's a very popular learning model, and they're doing it in specialties that include dementia or substance abuse, HIV. Last I checked when I did my orientation and affiliation process, um, there was about 40 American hubs and 9 or 10 uh, international hubs doing all manner of specialty work using the same model. Um, there's a little bit of work with palliative medicine uh but not a lot. And um, most of the hub sites in the States are in academic centers or uh large uh clinic systems. Uh we're a bit unique in that we're building a hub for palliative care in a rural setting because from my point of view, in this sort of technological environment that we're living in now, um where innovation or value is generated is irrelevant. This is a metaspacial intervention. It doesn't matter where we are. As long as we connect with people in time, it doesn't matter where they are. So we're connecting with people uh, on a weekly basis. In fact, after this call, I'm connecting with uh, people in Ireland and England to talk about telemedicine applications uh, in Europe uh, in Canada and Canada and here in the States. We're going We've created community around uh, people who are interested in making this technology work for the uh, people approaching the end of their lives. So yeah, so it's, it's a very new day, uh, and it's kind of exciting to me that we can innovate uh, in the beautiful rural redwood country that I've fallen in love with and call my home.
0: Outstanding, and congratulations for. Uh, the progress you're making, and the best of luck as you continue to progress. We're going to definitely keep in touch and keep up with your progress. Before we let you go, where can people go to contact you and learn more about Resolution Care?
1: The way to reach out to me directly is pretty simple. It's michael at resolutioncare.com. Additionally, if you want to stay on top of what we're up to, Um, please go to the website at www.resolutioncare.com and sign on for our uh, mailing list and newsletter. Um, I am falling in love with the Twitter platform, and I can be found at uh, Michael D. Fracken, so at Michael D. Fracken. Um, And uh, I think I'm on LinkedIn Um, If there's anybody out there who's had a a personal experience, either that was very good with palliative care or was very bad uh, for someone that they love at the end of their life, I'd like to invite anyone who's interested in writing a check to make this work uh, to reach out to me uh, because uh, it's hard to bootstrap a little startup. I know that we've got sustainable revenue coming uh, but if there's anybody who's inspired by what we have talked about today uh,
0: to write me a big fat check, <laughs> I would be very grateful. Absolutely, and it's not only a great company, but a great cause headed in the right direction. So all support will be appreciated, I'm sure. That was Dr. Michael Fratkin, founder and director of Resolution Care. Dr. Fratkin, it was so great to have you. Thanks for sharing all the great information and the great stories today. You bet, Joe. a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. That wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Dr. Michael Fratkin, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare. What you want, what you want, what you want, what you want, you want. what you want, what you want. Come on. What
1: you want, what you want, what you want. Come come